0: Hi, everybody. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith and I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church and I'm so glad you've joined us today. I hope to have the opportunity to meet you sometime in person soon. So, my favorite founding father of the United States is John Adams. John Adams, as you surely know, was the first vice president and second president of the United States. His story is one of grand adventure. He risked everything, including his life in the American Revolution. Many people say that he was the primary mind behind Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Much could be said about his biography, but in light of all he accomplished, I particularly appreciate his humanity. He struggled, for instance, with an abundance of ambition. He chafed at times under the shadow of George Washington. He had a famous and public falling out with his protege and close friend, Thomas Jefferson. He had great weaknesses as all great men do. but. He loved his wife passionately and faithfully, and among many other good qualities, the two of them shared an active hatred for the institution of slavery, and John Adams was a man of deep Christian faith. I fell in love with Adams while reading David McAuliffe's Pulitzer Prize winning biography on Adam's life. And I thoroughly enjoyed watching the HBO series about his life based on McAuliffe's book. In fact, at that time, we had an HBO executive in our church who secured a signed copy of McAuliffe's John Adams for me. It's a treasured possession of mine. Now, here's why I say all of this. One of my favorite scenes in that series is at the very end, Uh, President Adams is, about 90 years old, and he's about to die. He's at the very end of his life, and he's walking through a garden with uh, his youngest son, Thomas. You probably know that his eldest son, John Quincy Adams, was the sixth president of the United States. Well, Adams is walking through a garden with his youngest son, Thomas, and he sees a flower, and he exalts in the flower. In fact, He quotes scripture and he worships God in response to seeing this flower. I want to show you that scene. It's about two and a half minutes long uh, and Adams is played by Paul Giamatti. Check this out.
1: I have some scruples of conscience about whether I ought to be preserved or whether it would be charity of me to stumble. Still, Still, I am not weary of life, strangely. I have hope. I take away hope in what remains, what pleasures. Do you follow me, Mm Thomas? It's getting late, Father. it? Let's go inside. Come here, come here. I have seen a queen of France with 18 million livres of diamonds on her person, but I declare that all the charms of her face and figure added to all the glitter of her jewels did not impress me as much as that little shrub. Right there. My mother always said that I never delighted enough in the mundane. Now I find, if I look at even the smallest thing, my imagination begins to roam the Milky Way. Well, it's a phrase from St. Paul, you fool. Rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore! <laughs> oh, I wish that had always been in my heart and on my tongue. Ah. Oh. You know, I am filled with an irresistible impulse to fall on my knees in adoration. Right here. <laughs> okay. <There> we go. Father. <laughs> <About it. laughs> Father. <laughs> oh. 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 oh, if one of my knees would bend like they used to.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, why do I love this scene so much? Well, it's because President Adams, at the end of a long and glorious life, even with all he has seen and done, recognizes God's glory in a simple flower. I've seen the Queen of France, he says, covered in jewels, and that's not as glorious as this flower. And he makes it clear that he wishes that as a younger man, he would have paid attention paid attention to the beauty that could be found in a flower. In this scene, I see a beautiful example of what we're calling soul rest. Two weeks ago, we introduced this series based on the promise of Scripture that through Jesus, we can enter God's rest, and we can find rest for our souls, even in the midst of the challenges of life and the challenges of this time. Now, it seems to me That if someone can find peace and pleasure and God in a garden and a flower, that they probably have found rest for their soul. Again, Adams didn't always have this level of soul rest. I think this is important. If you know his story, you might see yourself in him in some ways. I certainly see myself in him in some ways. He was ambitious. He was as a young man particularly, striving, trying to force things. He had an inordinate need for approval, to matter. Uh, the, the utter grandiosity of his life is, is, is stunning, uh, and at the end, but really it only started to happen as he reached the end. He realized that God's glory and pleasure could be found in the most simple things in life. And you get the sense that he had rest in his soul. And I think you also may get the sense that if we can understand what he had come to understand at that season of his life, that we can have that kind of rest as well. I want to take issue for a minute in in contrast to that with something that Tim Ferris wrote in his fascinating book called 4-Hour Workweek. He wrote this, the opposite of happiness is boredom. I'll repeat that, the opposite of happiness is boredom. Excitement is the more practical synonym for happiness, and it is precisely what you should strive to chase. It is the cure-all. The question you should be asking is, what would excite me? Now, I like a lot of what Tim Ferriss says, but I find his reasoning here to be absolutely ridiculous. Is excitement, in fact, what we should strive for? Should we make excitement our primary goal? Will excitement make us happy? Now, I do understand the sentiment. I believe that boredom is one manifestation of a weary soul. I'll say that again. Boredom, I think, is one manifestation of a weary soul. No one wants to be married to the mundane. No one wants to find themselves living a disinterested, apathetic life where nothing ever makes the heart beat fast. I love adventure. I am all for excitement. However, I want to make the case today that the antidote to boredom is learning to find adventure in the natural rhythms of life. I submit to you that we shouldn't chase excitement, but rather learn to find deep pleasure in the ordinariness of our everyday lives. If you can exalt in a flower, or the smile of a child, or a morning cup of coffee with your spouse, or, a Zoom connection with a friend, or a walk through the neighborhood, or serving someone in need, or witnessing the daily rising of the sun, then I believe that you can find adventure every day and find rest in your soul. If we quit chasing excitement, and find excitement in the world around us then we will be saved from this exhausting quest to find what god has already provided i propose we have we i propose that we already have everything we need to find rest in our soul and these things exist all around us so i want to explore this today by offering Three secrets to everyday adventure. Three secrets to everyday adventure. Here's the first one. It's learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Here's what Jesus said that we're basing this series on. Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love this passage in the message version of scripture. Jesus says are you tired worn out burned out on religion come to me get away with me and you'll recover your life Jesus is saying that when we partner with him, we won't have to force our way in life. That doesn't mean that we won't have to work hard. The yoke he references implies work. It's just that when we're in relationship with him, that he will work harder for our success than we will. See, grace has to do with divine initiative. Grace is about what God wants to do for us always remember that there's a gravitational pull toward the good things that God has planned for us. We don't have to force life. We just need to learn to cooperate. So what did Jesus say? He said, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it, keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So. I believe that we need to learn to get up every day and confess our faith in Him and cultivate our relationship with Him. And at the end of the day, put our trust in Him. We need to know that He wants good things to happen for our lives more than we do. And not only that, but if we'll believe in Him, that He actually can make those things happen. When we understand this, it helps us find rest in our souls, and learn to live in the unforced rhythms of grace. Let's talk about rhythms for a moment. There's a natural rhythm to much of life. An understanding of these rhythms and an ability to be in sync with these rhythms is essential to living an unforced life. Life doesn't make sense if we don't submit to its rhythms. In any piece of music, for example, there must be a submission to all of its parts to a certain beat in order for the music to make sense as a whole. Rhythm is generally a positive word, probably because of its association with music. But the reality is that the rhythms of life are not always exciting. The rhythms of life are not always exciting. A good synonym for rhythm is the word pulse. Pulse, we like things that make the pulse race, or at least I should say I like things that make my pulse race, but it is the regularity of the pulse that sustains life. I like it when my pulse races, but it can't race all the time. If it raced all the time, it would be utterly exhausting. I think that jazz is a good metaphor for uh, this idea of learning the unforced rhythms of grace. Um, Jazz is both an art and a science. Jazz musicians are artists and technicians. Um, they, They are able to experience a, a an unusual freedom musically from what I understand but to do it within the constraints that are dictated by staying in rhythm so uh, they can improvise but they always have to come back to that regular rhythm to that regular beat and it's, I love to watch uh, a jazz trio, for instance, and how one of the players will take off, it seems like all by themselves, an adventure out, and some, some thing that seems in a way disconnected from what the other two are playing, but they always come back to that regular rhythm. The rhythm is what c- c- sustains whatever they're playing as something entire and whole. Well, there are a lot of ways we could talk about this. To, to talk about it uh, more in, in tune with most of our experiences, marriage is uh, something that is experienced best when two people learn to enjoy the regular rhythms of life. The honeymoon season is a pulse-racing time. And psychologists will say uh, that it's normative for a honeymoon season to last in a relationship for somewhere between six months and 18 months. That's all good. Again, I am all for pulse racing. But a friend of mine who had a long and happy marriage over many years said something to me very instructive many years ago. He said, what my wife and I enjoy the most are not the cruises and the vacations and the romantic dinners, although we enjoy those things. What we enjoy the most though, he said, is our daily morning cup of coffee together. We enjoy taking walks through the neighborhood and so on. See, real pleasure is found in everyday adventure when someone learns to appreciate the normal rhythms of life. And if we can learn to live in sync with those rhythms, we'll find ourselves living according to the unforced rhythms of grace. Now this is especially true as it concerns our relationship with Jesus. I propose to you that the secret to everyday adventure in the big picture of life is to walk with Jesus, to keep company with Jesus, to cultivate our relationship with Jesus in a way where we learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Uh, Now, during COVID-19, our regular rhythms in our lives, at least most of us, probably all of us, have been disrupted. We're having to learn new rhythms. Uh, and we need to learn to cooperate with those new rhythms and probably prepare for some even more new ones as we move into these next few weeks and months. But the constant beat of our lives, in spite of whatever's happening around us circumstantially, is our relationship with Jesus. The constant beat through every circumstance in our life is our relationship with Jesus. And when we learn to keep company with him and to pay attention to Him, and to be content with those rhythms that happen in our relationship with Him, we'll find that affecting every area of our life in incredibly positive ways. When we learn to live in those unforced rhythms of grace, we find grace all through our lives. Here's the second thing I want to talk about for a few minutes. It's to find God then in the ordinariness of life. Find God in the ordinariness of life. Now, I'm gonna take a little risk here in this forum where I'm speaking to you through a camera and into your, well, living rooms or family rooms or wherever you're watching today's message. I'm gonna take a little risk and I'm gonna spend a few minutes uh, reading and then trying to unpack in a meaningful way a sonnet Um, And this is one of those things where if you were sitting in the room, uh, I'd be able to watch your face and see if you're staying awake while I'm uh, talking through this and and grasping uh, why I think it's important that I'm saying what I'm saying, but you're you're gonna have to kind of stay awake on your own now. I will say homeschooling kids can get extra credit for what I'm about to say. So gather around kids, keep your parents awake, because I think this will pay off here in a moment. All right, a beautiful sonnet, by Gerard Manley Hopkins, an English poet and Jesuit priest. Here's a beautiful two stanza sonnet. I'll read it and then come back to it. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundly wells, stones ring like Each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow, swung finds tongue to fling out brought its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, selves goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came, I say more, The just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. I think that's a beautiful sonnet. I've had the opportunity to spend some time reading it, thinking about it, studying it. So uh, please allow me just to talk a little bit about what I think this means or what it at least means to me. I talked through a poem one time and talked to its meaning and actually got an email from a guy that week complaining that he felt patronized that I explained what the poem meant. Listen, I'm not patronizing you. I'm just going to tell you when I read a poem, it takes me a little bit of time to get my arms around it, my mind around it. And so I'm going to take a moment to talk about what, 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 what Hopkins is saying here. Are you ready? As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. He's referring to the fact that a kingfisher, a glorious bo- uh, bird, uh, 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 one of the most beautiful in England where Hopkins was writing, uh, when its plumage catches the sun, it appears to light on fire, dragonflies, their wings when, when lit by the sun as well in a certain way seem to look like flames. Then he moves from from things we see, kingfishers and dragonflies, to things we hear. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Or imagine stones being thrown in the well and the sound of those stones tumbling down to the water. Like each tucked string tells, the, the, the string of an instrument plucked, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Now imagine the, the tongue uh, uh, inside a bell swinging like a pendulum against the metal sides of the bell, and the bell broadcasting its sound out into the atmosphere. Each mortal thing, he says, does one thing, and the same deal, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. In other words, each of these things, these things created and these things made from creative things, when they live out innately what they are, then they have each a sameness in that they're doing what they were purposed to do. And then Hopkins says, selves goes itself, myself it speaks in spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. So each of these things, Whether Kingfisher's dragonflies, stones falling in a well, the string of an instrument being plucked, the sound of a bell tolling, when each of these things do what it was made to do, somehow God's glory is manifest in this. They say, this is what I do, this is why I came. And then Hopkins begins to talk about people, humanity in this light. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace that keeps all his goings grace. The just man lives justly, he lives out what he in fact is, and he lives according to a grace that God has given him. He lives out what God has planned for him. Then Hopkins says, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Doing, being what one was made to be and doing what one was made to do causes us to act in God's eye, what in God's eye He is, and this is where it gets beautiful, uh, at least for my money, Christ. What is He acting out? He's acting out Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not His, to the Father, through the features of men's faces. So what is Hopkins saying when he says, after all of this, that Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in things that aren't actually his? He's saying that when when created things and things made out of created things, live out their purpose, when they are what they were meant to be and do what they were meant to do, Christ can be seen in that. When a human being is what they were made to be, when they live that out, when they do that, when they function as a human being is supposed to function, Christ can be seen in that. And therefore the Father takes pleasure in the face of a human being who's not actually Jesus because the Father sees Jesus in that human being. So Christ plays in 10,000 places. In other words, Jesus can be found all around us in what we might normally think of as the ordinary things of life. So there's this great passage where Paul writes to the Romans, again this is from the message, it's said so beautifully here, this is where Paul writes, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you, take your everyday ordinary life you're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. What does he say? Take your everyday, ordinary life, what you do, who you essentially are, and offer it to God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. See, when we know that Christ is found all around us in ordinary things, we tend to just offer who we are and what we do to God and we quit chasing things that exhaust us and that keep us from having rest in our soul. Some of us are chasing the extraordinary and missing the extraordinary in the ordinary things all around us. Christ plays in 10,000 places. One of the heresies that the early Christians had to fight Maybe the one most prominently mentioned in the New Testament is a heresy called Gnosticism. I'm sure you've heard of it, probably heard folks teach about it or you've done reading about it. The Gnostics believed that the created world, all matter, all physicality is evil. That only the spiritual or immaterial is good and that one could could have special spiritual knowledge. In fact, the word Gnosis means knowledge. And the Gnostics believed that one could have special spiritual knowledge that could be found by escaping the world of the physical and entering into special and sensational experiences of the spiritual. So it's leaving the physical because in their view, the physical was bad. And it's, it's, it's entering into the spiritual in a way that would give them special knowledge. Well, one of the things that happened through this heresy is not only did the Gnostics deny the beauty of the created world and, and, and all that it meant meant to God who when he created it said it was good, not only did they miss all of that, but they also uh, denied the incarnation of Jesus, the idea that God actually uh, was enfleshed, if you please, in the body of a of a human being. And so it was in response, at least in part, to the heresy of Gnosticism that Paul wrote these words to the Colossians. This is, this is glorious, I think. He wrote, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities, in the unseen world, everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. And he holds all creation together. See, Jesus, Paul said, is the physical image of God. He created everything that we can see as well as what we can't see, both spiritual and material, and he holds all creation together and all of it exists for him. The reason I say that is to say that we should be able to look at the world around us and see Jesus everywhere. We should be able to see Jesus in everything. Now I know the world is broken, fallen, but Jesus came to save it, to bring it back to what it was meant to be in the beginning. And when we partner with him, we help him redeem it, to make it what it should be. But here's the deal. He wants to be extraordinarily present in the ordinary things of life. Jesus wants to be extraordinarily present in the ordinary things of life. See, he holds it all together. All creation is held together in him. No wonder he can be found in those things. Now, the danger of modern Gnosticism is that we can seek for spiritual adventure and miss finding God in the regular rhythms of life. Again, the danger of modern Gnosticism, the kind of thing that we can become susceptible to, is that we can seek for spiritual adventure and miss finding God in the regular rhythms of life. So, I had a friend say to me some time ago, I haven't had any powerful God experiences lately. I don't feel like God is working in my life." And later, after he gained the perspective that um, comes from this kind of teaching, frankly, he came back to me and said, hey, I want you to know I realize I was wrong about not having had any powerful God experiences lately. He said, My five-year-old son with a learning disability is having a wonderful experience in school. My wife has had a marvelous attitude during a difficult season in our lives. We've been in a challenging time financially, but God is providing all of our needs. And then he said, I've come to a new perspective, a faith perspective. I realize now that God has been working in all of this. Hey, look guys, I believe in miracles. If you've heard me teach at all, have any familiarity with me at all, I believe in miracles. I have seen, experienced, certifiable miracles in my own life, but in our quest for the miraculous, we must not miss the miracles happening all around us every day. In our quest for miracles, we cannot miss the miracles. that are all around us every day in what appears to be ordinary but it's not ordinary because Christ created it and even those things that we create from what he created even in those things Christ can be found Christ plays in 10,000 places. So there's a place in in, in in another of Paul's letters, this is a letter where he's writing to Timothy, a young pastor, and um, Timothy's caught in the grind of, of leading a local church and leading a local church through difficult times, and Paul wrote to him to encourage him, saying this, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. That sounds like a rhythm, doesn't it? preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. It's a fascinating passage, isn't it? He says, you know, Timothy, you just keep doing your job, just get up every day, and just stay in the rhythm of of, of the seasons of ministry, and just keep doing what you know that you're supposed to do. And don't don't worry about the fact that there at times will be people who won't want that sound teaching, but will try to find teachers who will satisfy what their itching ears want to hear. I would say to all of us that we should be careful to not be itching ears people and miss what God is saying to us right now, where we are, where we live. Um, You remember that story about Elijah? You probably do. God took Elijah and put him in a place where God said, I wanna make myself present to you. And Elijah's there waiting for God to show up. I think all of us would love for God to show up, I think. And uh, that's exciting, right? And, and and as Elijah standing there, a powerful wind came, it was so powerful, it tore the, the, the mountains apart, scripture says, but we're told the Lord was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake that shook the earth where Elijah was. But then scripture says the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there was a fire that came. And scripture says the Lord was not in the fire, but after the fire, we're told, God spoke to Elijah in a gentle whisper. The King James says a still, small voice. Sometimes I think that we're looking for God in the wind, the earthquake, the fire, you get the point. We're looking, we're chasing excitement and we're missing, we're missing the adventure of Jesus being found extraordinarily in the ordinary things of life. Sometimes we have to listen. We have to listen for the still, small voice, that gentle whisper of God that can't break through when our exhausted soul is chasing after what we think is exciting. But what we miss in that deep part of our soul where we find rest. Now, here's the third thing, and I'll be quick with this, and then we're gonna receive communion together, at least if if you'd like to join us for communion, I hope that you will here in just a few minutes. Here's the third thing, it's to live sacramentally. Live sacramentally. So here's a definition I would offer of of a sacrament, it's my definition, it's this, a sacrament is a physical thing in which God or something of God is seen, and when approached in faith, God is present. A sacrament is a physical thing in which God or something of God is seen, experienced, when we approach it in faith. So Christians um, will disagree on the number of sacraments, but all Christians will at least agree as to two. One is the sacrament of baptism, the other is the sacrament of communion. Now, uh, there are some parts of the Christian family who prefer the term ordinance, meaning these are things that Jesus ordained, and that's fine. And the reason why is because uh, some people, and I understand why, are concerned that when someone talks about a sacrament, that, that God is automatically present in a, in, in, a, in a physical thing or a physical act, whether or not the person engaging in it has faith or not. And, 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 and the fact is, at least this is what I believe, that a physical thing, a, a sacrament becomes full of meaning in God's presence, when the person engaging in that thing has faith in their heart. And so, you know, the, when when we have faith in our heart, then then that physical thing or act is assigned meaning. God is present in it, and and then it becomes sacramental. So an example of that would be baptism. Listen, when we baptize people here at the West Orange campus, I don't want to disappoint you when I tell you this, but 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 somebody takes a hose and they put water from the West Orange water system into a tub, and that water is just ordinary water. It doesn't, in my view, become holy because I pray over it. Now again, I don't want to offend your sensibilities. But what I'm saying is this, when a human being with faith in their hearts in Jesus gets in that ordinary water, and they confess their faith in Jesus, and the person baptizing them has faith in Jesus, and the congregation watching has faith in Jesus, Jesus is present in that ordinary thing. It's just water. But the presence of Jesus meets that person in that water when they believe in him. Um, When we receive communion, it's interesting that Jesus chose to use the most ordinary things uh, to be present in an act conducted by people with faith with these most ordinary things just bread or crackers Wine or juice—something that, in the time of Jesus, was a—you know—that was—that was—that was daily dinner, bread and wine—but but Jesus becomes present in that thing. It becomes a sacrament when the people who are receiving it confess their faith. Now, let me say one other thing before I finish. The great French and Christian philosopher Simon Ve wrote that the secret to connecting to God and finding meaning in life is to pay attention. To pay attention. I like that. She said quite a bit about that, but, but then she took it a step further because she said that this kind of seeing, you know, sometimes we can see somebody but not really see them. Sometimes we can see something but not really see it. But she said, when we really see, when we really pay attention, and in this case she was talking about to a person, she said that level of paying attention is sacramental. In other words, God can be present in that when we truly pay attention. Again, in this case, when we see another person, the way that God sees another person, it becomes sacramental. One might actually call that quasi-sacramental. If you're paying attention and want me to check all the boxes theologically, I would say that there are sacraments technically, and then there are things which are quasi-sacramental. So let's say, for instance, when John Adams was walking through the garden in the clip we saw earlier, and he saw that flower. Now, he had seen flowers, presumably many thousands of times in his life, but you'll notice in that moment, he saw that flower. When he saw that flower and connected that to God who made it, that became a sacramental moment, quasi-sacramental, however you wanna say it. God was present in that moment. I encourage you this week, to pay attention. I encourage you to look for God in the regular rhythms of life. I encourage you to look for God in what you thought before today were just ordinary things. Look at that flower. It's more beautiful than diamonds. Rejoice evermore. Look, the sun rose again Rejoice evermore. Look, this meal we just ate is delicious. Rejoice evermore. Look at the smile on the face of that person who loves me. Rejoice evermore. Look at the wind blowing through those trees. Rejoice Evermore. I could go on, I think you get the point. We need to learn to find everyday adventure in the amazing things that God has put all around us in this world and especially during this time. And when we do that, we somehow get in sync with the unforced rhythms of God and God's grace and we find rest for our souls.